today I am talking to Shakiba Mogadam, who is a PhD researcher at Portsmouth University. Uh, she's a boxer, she's a boxing, boxing researcher, she's a skateboarder, she's a fitness expert, minor celebrity, I think. Um, and yeah, we're going to talk about all that stuff today. Shakiba, thank you for coming on. Nice to meet you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm a big fan of what you do, so I'm really happy to be here. Um, and yeah, I'm doing well, thank you, in this cold day. Yeah, uh, it's, I mean, we, um, so you published an article in, in the journal Martial Arts Studies, which was all about um, female boxers and their career progression and the kind of stories they tell and what we can learn about those those stories. Tell us a little bit about that for people who haven't read the article. Tell us a little bit. Yes, sure. So the article was actually part of my um, master's project, my master's dissertation, which I ended up publishing. Um, and it's basically looking at the, the challenges that are experienced by female boxers and the strategies that they adopted to overcome those challenges. And the way I, I, I done it was looking at the basically come up in the sport. So them as a novice and then going through the developmental stages of boxing and as an elite boxer. Um, all the boxers had competed at a international level as well, so the experience was 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 a lot in comparison to perhaps um, ten years ago, where female boxing wasn't really that big. So it was really interesting to get their their opinions and you know go through their lived experiences in from a research perspective. So what were you what were you looking for, and what was the most kind of major thing that you found? Um, my main, I guess, my main goal with that was. <clears throat> to find out the, the predominant challenges that are common in female boxes and <clears throat> in different stages. For example, as a novice, the common challenge was proving themselves as female boxers, that they belong in this gym, that they are equals to their male counterparts. And then as they move through developmental stages, so where you have maybe between six to 10 bouts, um, it was that hardship of being accepted, but then also being able to get the right sparring, sparring partners that were in the same way, and then competing was really difficult for them, given that, again, 10 years ago, female boxing wasn't really that big, you know, even in the Olympics, it was only accepted as a sport in 2012. Yeah. And so finding sparring was difficult for them. And then when they reached the elite level, um, they spoke about their disappointment um, about what they expected from the elite level in terms of the support system that we're going to get. Um, of course, the support systems differed, but the common consensus was that there was this feeling of disappointment that it wasn't what they expected, um, especially at that elite level where you're competing for the country and, the, and that their performance was always compared to their male counterparts, which of course, physiologically, we shouldn't be making that comparison. Um, it was interesting, and for me, it was a little bit disheartening, really, because I felt like with these with these girls, they, they, they had put in so much of their time and effort into that sport, and I feel like they hadn't gained the respect that they needed. Um, but of course, I feel like within the last two to three years, female boxing has really taken off, especially within the professional ranks. And finally, you know, female boxers are getting the recognition and they, the world that, that they deserve, but also it's needed within a sport like boxing. Mm. So is there a, a, are there comparable studies of, of uh, male boxers through their 
their careers that use similar kind of approaches and and did you were there different discoveries about men or is this a is this a unique thing you just kind of thought dive in look at the women uh but there's no kind of counterpart to to compare it with or is is there a study that you would compare it with there was so i i conducted a study in 2016 um but i published it later on when i came back to it um the only one study i found was that it looked at um the journey of olympic mailboxes um and that was around i think 2016-17 and at that moment in time there wasn't any study that was done with female boxers that looked at that similar journey in terms of the olympic rankings and what it takes to get to that level um which again i guess i went in with my own assumptions that boxing is a, is a very traditional sport it dates back to you know many years ago and so I guess naively at that point thought, yeah, there'd be loads of research in female boxers because when I looked at the research, it, it was there. Yeah. But when you look a bit deeper and dig deep, it, there isn't much on female boxers in terms of what I was looking at anyway. Um, and then I, I looked a little bit more in, in other sports, especially male-dominated sports. And there was a really great paper I came across that looked at um, women's rugby, martial, mixed martial arts, and roller, roller derby. And that looked at the challenges of uh, female athletes and I found that quite fascinating because as I was reading around this topic I found I had to really widen my horizon in terms of the research I'm looking at because frankly there was nothing in boxing at that precise moment hmm. um, and I, I looked and I looked and I found actually I, I'm, I come from a sports psychology background but when I when I went into sports sociology there was a wealth of research actually tapping into that area or at least with um, women athletes within mixed martial arts, within um, jiu-jitsu, that came up quite a lot, um, and within also boxing as well. So that was quite interesting to see. But again, a lot of them didn't reflect um, the British culture around boxing, especially amateur boxing. Um, much of it was about professional boxing. And so the, the, there is, and to be honest, this, that niche still exists and that gap within the literature still still it, it still exists, still there. It hasn't been bridged, mm. especially when you compare it to mailboxes. You know, there's psychological research, there's physiological research, um, there's emotional regulation research, but that worth of research is just not the same when you look at it from a female boxer's perspective. I mean, is that because the numbers are different? I mean, do you have a sense of it in terms of quantifiability? Like, what's the dis the disproportion or the difference between male and female? either professional or even amateur, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, um, I think it definitely comes down to numbers in terms of, okay, where do we get these athletes to even research them? They're, they are there, but I feel like they are difficult to get in touch with in terms of wanting to actually conduct some sort of research. Um, of course, not every single person would want to come forward wanting to research. Of course, you, you, you meet those obstacles just that you would meet with research. Mm. Um, with boxing, especially, so if we look at Olympics, women currently, or at least they did um, in the Olympics that's just gone, had three weight categories in comparison to the 11 weight categories that men had. So that instantly, that's a massive disproportion. Um, and there's been arguments around, actually, there isn't enough women boxers for us to open the categories but that's proven through amateur ranks that um and the commonwealth that the numbers aren't there now and also i think a problem with 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 the numbers isn't that there isn't enough um female boxers is actually looking at legislation and rules and regulations within other countries 
So Cuba produces one of the biggest platforms and a lot of boxes come out of Cuba from an amateur background into professional. But actually Cuba is one of the places where women's boxing isn't necessarily accepted. Um, legally, it wasn't accepted. Um, and also from a societal point of view, it's not, it's not acceptable for a woman to box. Um, if we look at a country like Iran, where so I was born in Iran as well, as a female boxer, you're looked at as a criminal because it's a crime to box as a female in Iran. And so, of course, when you look at it from that perspective, I guess from a, an international perspective, there are certain countries that are not actually allowing the sport to be born for, 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 its, woman, for its woman population. And that instantly will put a damper on the numbers for women, women's boxing. But even with that, there has been this massive surge in boxing, I believe, since 2016. Since 2012, but I know it took it went up when the Olympics was on and then it went back down again. Um, but I think as professional boxing has has risen, especially in the media, and with likes of Eddie Hearn, you know, signing um, female boxers, wherever signing on female boxers in America. It's really picked up in the last two to three years. Okay, um, so there's lots I could ask you about that. So you said it's quite hard to, to actually find and make contact with an interview that the boxers. Is that is there a general reason for that, or is it just kind of hard to get hold of these people, or, or do they avoid? I, I guess are, are they shy of being interviewed? I think one of the problems that I personally faced and then once I started reading around it it seemed that it was a similar problem and I think with that and it wasn't just in boxing it was in in other sports for example with rugby it was the same so my PhD is looking at elite women rugby players um, and it was speaking out about the experiences but with the worry of what if they identify me because actually there isn't that many participants in this pool of boxers so if you are a boxer who's from X ethnicity, X age, and from this location, mm. and you've made the Olympic team or the England team, mm. people can find out who you are very quickly, just from those details. And of course, with research, we, we only give age, you know, it's anonymous in terms of your participation, but those details were enough to identify who was involved. Mm-hmm. And so... I know that for me, when I was conducting my master's project, people weren't coming forward because they were worried about talking about their experiences openly mm. and actually that becoming detrimental to, for example, being picked for a team or even being dropped. Mm. And that was interesting because male boxers don't have that problem because there's so many of them. And yeah. that was really apparent when I done my undergraduate project, project with male and female boxers. I didn't get that problem with mailboxes whatsoever, but when it came to females, they were so cautious um, about being identified. Interesting, interesting. That is really interesting. Hmm. Um, I mean, it'd be really hard to think of another possible methodology that you could use where you could get to speak to people, but because you can't say who they are or what status they have because there's Mm -hmm. so many. Okay, so, and I mean, have you kept up with the, the situation in Iran. I mean, does that is that something that you keep an eye on uh, as someone who's interested in the maybe the, the, the professional and also the amateur and maybe even the gender issues? Do you, do you look at that legal yeah. stuff? It's I I keep up to date with with um, what goes on back at home and 
I went back in 2019 um, to visit family and that, that was my last trip to back home. Um, and I had to be really cautious with, with everything to the point where I actually took, took a, I have a twin sister, so I took her passport with me as well um, as a backup. And with the government there, they will look for anything if you have a second citizenship, basically. If you have a dual nationality, they will look for anything to, to keep you there, basically, yeah. put it nicely. And so my activity within boxing was very apparent online. Um, I went off every social media platform. Um, I got in touch with a couple of platforms to take down what they had on me in terms of boxing. Mm-hmm. And I tried to be as cautious as I could. Um, when I went back, I found actually that boxing as a sport was really open to women. So within the parks, there were women on pads with even mostly women coaches, but sometimes with a male coach as well. Um, and I tried to get in touch with a couple of people, but because I was only there for 10 days, it was really hard. But mm. I did manage to kind of get insight into what was going on there. And um, I was going to the gym every day there and the, the gyms there are separated in male and female hours. So the mornings are dedicated to men and the, the evenings are dedicated to women. And I, I spent every day in the gym training alongside other women and speaking to them about their experiences mm. in the gym. And I naturally opened up the discussion around boxing and it was interesting because they were saying, you know, we watch boxing now because they have access to um, YouTube, which sometimes can be blocked, but they have access to all these different sites now um, that are, that the government can no longer control. Mm-hmm. And so they were saying that you know, we, we know there's women boxers, we know there's women boxers that are from Iran out there. And actually we are interested in, 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 in trying it out. Um, and a lot of them spoke about self-defense and how that could be used as a source of self-defense. So it was really interesting, but again, from a government's perspective, it is still completely forbidden. Mm. Um, they relate it back to religion, but again, it's, it goes beyond religion in terms of, you know, because that could easily be sorted out in terms of the hijab, you could wear a long sleeve and it happens in Muay Thai. Um, mm. We have there's a lot of Muslim women that compete in it. Um, I think, in terms of the government in Iran, it goes back to women being perceived with a sense of empowerment, um, being perceived as strong females rather than this weak second-class citizen that the government they portray women to be. And it was actually really empowering to see women really uprise um, and to take and to risk, you know, going out and openly doing pad work outside. Um, that for me was amazing to see and I think that was a great feeling coming back was actually something is happening and people are rebelling against what used to be yeah. you know, not the norm. Yeah and I get I mean one would hope I mean maybe I'm assuming too much but like people who are into boxing they get into boxing and if you've got access to global media and you're watching men's boxing and women's boxing I mean that there must be a force there where you get there'll be men on side as well who would be like this is a ridiculous law or is that is that too optimistic is it too simplistic no i think in this day and age especially in this day and age there are so many male coaches especially as well Hmm. that are open to the idea of women boxing um i I speak to a i've kept in touch with a a guy who, who competes for the iranian boxing team and um, he gets his partner into it. His partner is now organizing sessions just for females to, to just to do simple pad work and bag work. Mm. And so there's a lot of male 
there's this new generation of males I feel like that are supportive of this movement not just within boxing just women empowerment and to rebel against again what used to be the norm for women maybe 10 years ago and I really felt that when I went back um it wasn't the same as what it used to be when I when I grew up there and again that was amazing to see it's a real massive improvement so you you were a, a refugee um in, into the UK and and now you're active and vocal in, in working to help your, to, to get the university to support and acknowledge um, the needs of refugees further. Is there any connection between your life status and your refugee status and boxing? Or is that just like you like to keep fit and it was just one of those things? Or, or is there a, a principled connection of some kind? Or I think with, with boxing, when I got into it, I was, I, 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 I needed something I think in that precise moment of my life so I got into it the second year of, of, of uni um, and I was away from from home and home you know up, Portsmouth isn't that far from Southampton but I was still away from the little family that I had and I tried I you know I tried so many sports I tried longboarding for a year I tried wakeboarding and I just didn't feel like I guess a community that you get in martial arts, especially in boxing, it's, it's second to none. And I, I just, I was craving for it. And then I did a kickboxing um, taster session. And then I watched the boxing session afterwards and the, the coach um, was this militant discipline guy, Wayne. And he, you know, there was no joking around and I really enjoyed that discipline. <laughs> um, and I stayed behind and. I remember for two weeks, I had to just try and build up this courage to go up to him and just ask him, can I come for a session? And he was like, yeah, of course you can, but you know, this isn't anything like a kickboxing student yeah. classes. <laughs> um, we don't do socials, we don't do drinking. And I, you know, and I was like, okay, cool. Um, all right, I, I'm, I'm, I don't mind. And again, in that moment, I, I was really taking a step back from drinking. Um, I think I spent the, the first year of uni just drinking quite heavily and I really wanted to step back from that kind of scene and boxing really it, it really gave me an opportunity to just invest all my energy into it um and I think with my experiences as a refugee coming here it was it was a really hard experience especially for a nine-year-old um to come into a country where I couldn't speak the language I didn't know anyone here I felt like an alien you know and you do feel alienated mm. um and I just felt like I'm not an aggressive person at all whatsoever, but I felt like with with certain emotions that you get, that I experienced a lot at junior school, I got angry quite a lot because there was a lot of bullying going on and I couldn't express myself in terms of language. And so usually it led to some sort of fight or and usually well, it was always with boys. Um, my mom, and then my mum put me and my sister into an all-girls school to avoid, and it worked. I wasn't fighting anymore because there was no boys there to annoy me. <laughs> and, um, and it worked. And I just felt like with boxing, you have to really control the aggression. And that, and I love that aspect of controlled aggression you get with boxing because not only are you, are you making quick decisions on the spot, but you're controlling your emotions yeah. And if you don't control your emotions, then you're going to get hurt so bad. Um, and I love that aspect, that discipline of it. And I feel like my life has always been very disciplined. And so I could, and I like the disciplined lifestyle and I could see that in boxing. Mm. And then when I'd done it, it was literally the first session I was like, yeah, this is my sport. I am, um, mm. I'm going to stick in this. And 
I just really enjoyed the learning process of boxing, you know, my, from my first sparring session to my first fight, to my 15th fight, to just the process of getting to know everyone. Um, it was just such a raw sport with raw emotions. And I really found my, it sounds a bit cliche, but I honestly really did find myself in, in boxing in terms of, you know, who I'm really, who, who, I, who I'm really am deep down, like when you peeled away the layers and, you know, you just, you can't hide in a boxing ring. It's just you and the opponent. Um, and that feeling you get when you're in there, you know, you're getting hit and you either come back or you don't or controlling, if you if you know you're better than someone, is controlling it so then you, you you either win by TKO KO or by points mm. and not getting carried away and I think so many of those aspects you can relay back into normal life mm. and it, it just never gets boring yeah no I I am I, um, I think that'll speak to a lot of people who've fallen in love with a martial art like when you were when you were talking about the difference I like the sound of the boxing coach because the, the difference between the kickboxing class and the boxing class it reminded me long time ago I went to an Aikido class and it was quite convenient and I went and I was checking it out and it was local and then they were talking about going to Birmingham for a competition and they were like oh well, it's in three months but by then you know you'll, you'll be coming out drinking with us and you'll be everything and I was like no I won't and literally all I want from you is skill that's all I want I, would, I don't want anything I don't want to be your friend really but you yeah. do you you like the community so like with me I eventually most recently before lockdown it was Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I was like this is so intense terrifying challenging physically grueling and exhilarating and then you just go home and there was yeah. no there was no obligation to hang out with them or I mean although they did that interesting no I think that that really that that connection with the intensity so you have a kind of community but it's a community for then and for there and it's a, it's about learning about yourself and mm-hmm. you go out from that like armed into the world with with insight about yourself and a, and a sense yeah. of who you are and where you are yeah absolutely I think my participation in boxing actually led to not drinking for four and a half years um which was a really great experience I think I I managed to not that I ever had any problems with drinking, but I think you fall into this pattern of going out every weekend. And I think it comes with being a student, you know, you go out and I liked not being, you know, that person that actually said no to going out or I went out and I didn't drink. Hmm. And then I, I, I met very similar minded people in boxing as well. And I think that me and me, my partner through boxing, um, who nearly knocked me out in our first session in sparring. You were made for <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I asked for it, so it's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, let me ask you. Um, so, get a few. Th- I'll get a few things on the table. So, just googling around this morning and finding out more about you. So, you're a, a kind of fitness fanatic. Your PhD research is on 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 rugby players. You, I, I don't know if you ever saw it through to actually filming it, but you you were kind of selected for, or you auditioned for one of these like SAS survival courses. I don't know if the pandemic ruined that for you, but like you got, it, for you, it seems to be all about the, the, the fitness, the intensity, the, 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 the broad range of experiences. I mean, is it, is, are these all connected? Are they, are they discrete, different kind of parts of your life or different practices in the world? What do you think? <laughs> I think um, they're all interlinked, I think, because of the way it makes me feel. Um, 
I just think from even a young age, I've, I've always been after something that is just, that you just get adrenaline from, I guess. Um, and I don't want to use the word adrenaline and junkie, um, but I, I just, I guess, I guess more recently as well, I say more recently, probably in the last five years, I, I've come to a point in my life where I've just thought, you know, there's so much more to us as humans and especially with our limitations, you know, with, with studying um, as an undergraduate, you know, when I saw a PhD student, I was like, wow, doing a PhD, that's, the, you know, I wonder if I can do that, it's too hard, you know, yeah. and then here I am doing it and I think, yeah, it's hard, but it's, it's not impossible. And I've just, just through reading and research and stuff, I just think, you know, we set these limitations on ourselves. I tell myself that, you know, I can only run 50K, but in fact, I can run 100 if I want to. Mm. And so then I'm like, okay, that's great thinking about us, but let's do it. Let's see if he can run 100K. So I signed up to an ultra. Um, and then I'm like, I hate the cold. You know, okay, what's going to test me? Have a cold shower for 30 seconds. Have a minute cold shower. Go in the sea and see how you react. Mm -hmm. Of course, all of these are controlled, you know, in terms of safety precautions. I don't just go into it blindly, but I've really learned in terms of limitations. It's something that we just put on ourselves whether that's physically, whether that's mentally, like they don't exist. Of course, the human body is limited to certain things, but there's nothing to say that I as a person can't do a PhD, I as a person can't run 100K or anything. And I think when I realized that in myself, I began to test it through these different avenues. Mm -hmm. And so for example, with SAS, so SAS Who Does Wins is this, reality tv show if you can call it that although i hate that term um it is going it's 10 days of absolutely grueling experience of similar procedures that the special forces go through and it's run by ann middleton foxy and ollie and billy billingham um and it, I, I basically applied for it mm -hmm. um went through a two-month process of getting tested physically and psychologically got shortlisted and ended up going um to the isle of sky in scotland for 10 days and it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life especially I was the smallest person who's, who's ever been on it so I weigh around 50 kilograms I fight out 48 I'm five foot two so things that 100 kilogram men were doing I'm finding difficult mm. was supposed to be difficult for me but I guess with, with the mentality I had going into it I don't see myself how other people see me I, I see myself as how I see myself mm. and so going to these adventures whether it's boxing whether it's you know mountain mountain racing whether it is SAS who does wins mm -hmm. I'm going into it looking at me from my perspective rather than from someone else's perspective mm -hmm. um, and I think it, all of this stuff interlinks because it goes back to my belief about who we are and what we can do and I think a lot can be achieved when, when we remove that barrier that we set for ourselves in terms of limitations um, and yeah, I'm, I'm always in, in the pursuit, I guess, a pursuit to, to find my breaking point mm -hmm. because at the moment that always seems to be yeah. improving or enhancing or I'm, I'm just looking for it. Yeah. Well, from my experience, once you get over 40, the breaking point comes to find you every day. <laughs> you don't have to look for it. It's just like, oh, there it is. Okay. I'm broken again. <laughs> maybe that's just me I'm not made of I'm not the you know I'm not the kind of person who 
pushes in that way a friend of mine has he has all these rowing machines and professional rowing machines and bikes and everything he's always like gotta come and train i'm like no i, I don't want to just push my body to the point of collapse I, there has to yeah. be skill acquisition yeah right, for right. me that's why the martial arts any martial art is interesting from a technical ability and with the technical ability comes some fitness or flexibility i'm happy with that i don't i can't do rowing machines or or, or exercise bikes or peloton or any of that oh no i don't like any of that no <laughs> no not at all real outdoors the real sea yeah, exactly. the real ocean the real yeah okay okay so what so what can we expect from you in terms of um academic publications or conferences or, or chapters or something what 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 does the kind of future hold um yeah so in terms of the in terms of my phd um we are putting, we've put in a, my first study, which is looking at mental health literacy in um, semi-elite women rugby players. It was such an interesting study to do um, in terms of, I guess, the findings. I don't want to say too much because no one would read the paper, but it was really interesting in terms of mental health literacy. So for ment mental health literacy is basically our own knowledge around um, recognizing symptoms of mental health disorders recognizing where to go for help or to who, who to seek help from but also recognizing those symptoms and signs not just in ourselves but also in others too um, and so mental health literacy we measured that we measured well-being we measured distress um, and help seeking and women rugby players had a very high mental health literacy which was really interesting hmm. um, it, they had higher than the student population they were higher than um, doctor and junior doctors and nurses, and so and they were just slightly higher than um, college coaches in sport as well. And that was really interesting to find out because it's a cohort that is rarely looked at in terms of milk. They're not looked at at all in mental health. Um, and so that was really interesting for, 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 for us, so myself and my supervisor, Dr. Paul Ganinsky, to find out because it's an untapped area in terms of no, no one has looked into that mental health literacy. Um, and for it to be so high was interesting, yet their the attitudes towards help seeking didn't reflect their knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that was really interesting to find out because it's left the question, why are they not seeking help if they know so much about mental health? and where to gain help, why is it that their the behaviours are not reflecting mm -hmm. that knowledge? And then within that research, we found subgroups within this quite niche cohort anyway. So those that identified as gay or lesbian were far less likely to go and seek help. Um, even though the mental health literacy was still quite high, the help-seeking behaviours were very low. And that was a really interesting observation. So it's really just digging a bit deeper in terms of finding out what are those behaviors existing. Mm -hmm. And then we, so the, the first thing we've done with the PhD was to do a systematic review and meta-analysis. Um, and that's another publication that hopefully we should put in this week. Um, and that basically looked at to see what research is out there in terms of epidemiological research, looking at the mental health symptoms and all disorders within rugby players, so male or female. So we ran this search several times and the most recent search identified eight papers. Um, and that was, for me, that was really shocking. Um, again, I went in with my own assumptions that 
rugby is another traditional sport. It's been around for so many years. Um, surely there's going to be a lot of papers around mental health. And there wasn't. Um, again, surprising given that the rates of injury in rugby, especially with concussion, that could lead to symptoms of anxiety and depression, there was no research. Well, there was, there was just about only, you know, very scarce in terms of what's out there. And it's only been done in the last four years. So it's, it is in its absolute infancy. So that was really interesting, but for me, it was kind of shocking as well. And it was really annoying because in my writing, I, I attached a lot of emotion to it and a lot of my feedback in my writing was like, you need to remove emotion with your writing because I was constantly referring to, you know, this neglected population or, you know, that it's shocking with these, with this, you know, there's only eight studies. How can it be only eight studies? As <laughs> I'm writing about it, it was really hard because I, I just put out my emotions in writing and after a couple of edits, I had to remove all of it. But yeah, it was, it was interesting to see that there isn't anything really out there in terms of so there's so much out there in terms of physiological yeah. mental measures but yeah. mental health very limited i would i would guess there's going to be an upsurge an ups kind of surge of, of of writing about mental health given what we're all living through and given it's it's really prominent in media discourses as well isn't it i mean and it's also just current. I mean, it's it's a force that people can feel now. We can feel it in ourselves and in the people we're closest to and the people we're separated from. We can feel the need for that literacy mm -hmm. and for, for that environment um, to be developed. So it sounds like you've, you've, you've been for the last few years working on something that will only be increasingly relevant. Um, yeah, um, I mean, yeah, I, I like to think so. And um, I've got to give it to my supervisor the research that he does and what he, the work he does is absolutely fascinating. He looks at mental health literacy in sport, but also in education in terms of university students and university students at the moment are going through probably one of the most horrible experiences that university student could go through, especially as a first year. So it's really interesting to see the works that are currently being done. Um, I think there needs to be a lot more done in terms of the support systems that are put into place during the pandemic for mm not just athletes, but different populations. Um, for example, there's a lot of work I'm currently trying to do with the university looking at mental health literacy in the refugee population um, or international students, um, given there's yeah. a language barrier as well. Yeah. Um, so we're looking at getting in counselors that could um, identify from different ethnic backgrounds, but also can speak the language. Yeah. Um, because we know, we know once these signs and symptoms start to show and if they're not dealt with, they're going to lead to far worse things. Um, so it's important we grab it whilst we can and deal with it. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely fascinating. So, um, I mean, and when when are you hoping to, I should never ask, I shouldn't ask when you're hoping to, to submit your PhD. That's a, it's, it's a very rude thing to ask. No, you know what? I, I like that you acknowledge that because every time I get asked this, yeah. um, especially my family member, because my, my sister has just finished her PhD and um, all I've been getting is, so when are you finishing yours? Yeah. Like, she's, she's full time. She's funded. I'm working. I'm mine part time. Wow. Okay. Um, well, I, let's, let's scratch that, that question. No, no, no. Uh, but no, no. I wanna, yeah. I'm going to answer it because it will come into the end. So we're looking at somewhere between april to september 2022 so it is not far at all 
Um, and I'm actually, I get excited talking about the finish line now because yeah. I can see it. We've got one last study to do, which we're just working on the ethics to submit. And I think the majority of the work's been done. It is just putting the last puzzles in and wrapping up this last study and just seeing, I'm just looking forward to it all coming together in terms of the effects it will have, um, because it is truly laying the foundations within mental health and women's rugby. And I think there's so much to be done and it's so exciting to be part of something that could potentially become really relevant in the future. Yeah, no, that sounds great. I wish you um, very best of luck with that. It's very impressive I, to, to do a PhD without full funding is, is incredibly challenging at the best of times. So. Okay, Shakiba, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, that was really interesting. And um, yeah, best of luck with everything. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure.